Welcome to That's a Hard No, the podcast about learning to say no and set boundaries to live our best lives. I'm your host, Heather Drago. You may think because of this podcast that I'm a boundary setting expert, but I'm not. I'm an expert at struggling to set boundaries. But you know what? I'm working on it and it is getting easier. Follow along with me as I learn from fellow strugglers and experts so that you too can start saying no without feeling fear, guilt, or FOMO. Today's episode is about something I feel we've all dealt with, we've all encountered in some form or another in our lives, alcohol abuse. When you think about alcohol abuse, its worst forms are always what come to mind. Someone shuffling down the road at 10 a.m., paper bag in hand, the car in front of you going 10 miles under the speed limit and struggling to stay in the lines. What an idiot, we say to ourselves. These people's inability to control themselves and their alcohol consumption is a moral failing of theirs. They're bad people. Sure, we've all had those nights where we accidentally take it too far or those tough days at work where you need a glass of wine in the evening to take the edge off. But that's different, right? That's not a pattern of behavior. I'm not an alcoholic like them, right? Our society's relationship to alcohol and its abuses has changed quite a bit in my lifetime. Have you seen this clip going around of Californians in the 80s reacting to new drunk driving laws? Any attempt to restrict drinking and driving here is viewed by some as downright undemocratic. It's kind of getting common this when a fella can't put in a hard day's work, put in 11, 12 hours a day, and then get in your truck and at least drink one or two beers. They're making it laws where you can't drink when you want to. You have to wear a seatbelt when you're driving. Pretty soon we're going to be a communist country. These were real people saying that the U.S. was a communist state for keeping drunk drivers off the road. And got that one woman, did you see the baby in the front seat with her? Crazy. Totally crazy. Alcohol abuse at that time wasn't getting buzzed on your drive home from work. It was being too drunk too often to hold down a job. Public attention for drunk driving and alcohol abuse did see a pretty dramatic dip through the late 90s, however. It seemed like my generation, Gen X, had gotten the message that you shouldn't put others in danger because you want to have a good time. We're all starting to learn that addiction in its many forms isn't something an addict can control. I recently saw an interview with Matthew Perry, a friend's fame, God rest his soul, where he talked about doing a lot of work to control for his first drink as an alcoholic. But if he somehow managed to get one, he was no longer able to enact any self-control over his alcohol consumption from there on. That all being said, alcohol deaths are on the rise now. Last year, more people died of alcohol-related incidents than any year in the past 30 years, which is insane. 
Yet again, it may be time to change how we think about alcohol and its consumption on both a personal and societal level. Our guest today is Marcy Rossi, a certified alcohol-free mindset and success coach whose mission is to help women let go of limiting beliefs around alcohol so that they can create the lives they've always dreamed of. She says that we need to leave terms like alcoholic and alcoholism in the past. Welcome to the show, Marcy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank, and we're so excited to have you here. I think this is a really timely conversation. And, um, you know, a lot of people have just gone through this like dry January kind of a thing. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of negative self-talk going on around that. So for our first question, how has our understanding of alcohol abuse and dependency changed since the 80s? And why are terms like alcoholic outdated and harmful? Well, so I think that the problem here is that they've changed in some spheres, but not for a lot of people, right? If you think of someone who drinks too much, you say alcoholic. Mm -hmm. You don't say that person has alcohol use disorder, even though alcohol use disorder is the new term for the medical community. And when I say new, um, it was actually in 1980 that they stopped using the word alcoholic, but it's just so prevalent, especially because the primary form of help in this area has alcoholic right there in the name, but mm -hmm. that's the word that people use. But if you think about something like alcohol abuse, what that actually means, what would cigarette abuse mean? Is smoking one cigarette abuse? Is it two? Because we know cigarettes are bad for you, but we also know alcohol is bad for you. So where are the limits there? So it's a it's kind of an arbitrary term that we've assigned, and that's why I prefer what the alcohol, excuse me, what the medical community uses, which is alcohol use disorder, because then there's a spectrum there. There's a very clear, if you say yes to this, that, and the other, um, then you qualify for mild, medium, or, or uh, mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder. And I also, I read on um, one of your blog posts, you talked about when you identify someone as an alcoholic, you're really othering them. Absolutely. You want to talk more about that? Yeah, I don't think I don't think anybody signs up to be an alcoholic. Like they're not like, this is going to be really fun. That's how I want to be for the rest of my life. Please call me this term. If they do it, it's because they're um, believing that it's important for their recovery or for their behavior change. So the word alcoholic is just very scary for us. Like you mm -hmm. kind of mentioned, it's that person on the side of the road, or it's that person who's, you know, driving drunk with their baby in their lap, or it's a person who just can't control it versus maybe me who had a little too much on Saturday night or, mm -hmm. you know, that one time I, I dipped a little too heavily, but that doesn't count. You know, it's, it was something special, that one-off occasion. Um, so that's where I think alcoholic can be just really limiting. If we say that you only have to stop when you're an alcoholic, then there's a lot of people that could probably benefit from drinking less or not at all, mm -hmm. but they don't have to ask themselves that question because they're not an alcoholic. Those are those people. Those people at those 12-step meetings have problems. But I'm okay. You know, like I did it too hard last night, but that's just a one-off. I'm okay. I don't have to look at my consumption. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I've talked about this plenty of times on the podcast, but you may not have known this, that I recently went through a, a cancer journey. Mm -hmm. And I'm fine now. Everything's fine. Um, but um, my cancer was estrogen-related. And so when I met with a nutritionist, um, we talked about foods to foods and beverages to avoid. And um, she said, you know, alcohol is a carcinogen. And I was like, she's, she's like, you should try to avoid drinking. And I was like, well, you know, at that point I was like, well, I do enjoy a bourbon nightcap a couple times a week. Like, I can, and just even that. And she said, alcohol at any level is a carcinogen. So it's up to you what you're willing to put in your body. Um, and we know that 
you know, it, it raises the level of estrogen in your body, which then is a whole different thing. Um, and so I just was like, okay, I don't want any carcinogens in my body. It was kind of eye-opening, you know, because I never have thought of it that way. Um, we talk about it being like it impairs your judgment or it might be dangerous if you're a pregnant person or if you have alcoholism. Um, um, but I never thought about it as being dangerous in any other way. And so I have cut it out of my life. And my husband, to his credit, um, in solidarity, hasn't had anything to drink either. But I will tell you, like, if we're at a wedding, it's really hard not to have a toast of champagne. And I will, I'll have a little half a glass of champagne or whatever. Um, it was hard at first, um, even though I knew from my health benefit, it, it wasn't a good idea. So I just think it's, I don't think a lot of people know that it's a carcinogen and how dangerous it can be. Why don't, why don't you and fill us in on that? I had no idea. So if you had asked me before I kind of went through this whole journey, um, I would have said that alcohol harms your liver, right? Like that's yeah. it, that's the problem there. But I never knew or that if it was you drink too much of it, then it's dangerous. Then it's dangerous. You could die if you drink too much at one point. Okay, I get mm -hmm. this. But I had no idea it was a carcinogen. And it was named a group one carcinogen in 1988. Now, full disclosure, I was born in 1988. So my entire life, Alcohol has been a known carcinogen and I had no idea. And that's because they don't have to advertise it, right? And if you mm -hmm. look at the back of that wine bottle, it says, don't drink when you're pregnant, don't operate machinery and may cause health problems, may, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing else on there. You open a, uh, grab a pack of cigarettes and you've got all kinds of warnings on there about lung cancer and everything else. Mm -hmm. But alcohol has been tied to seven different kinds of cancer. And then really? you have stuff, yeah, seven different kinds, including breast cancer. Yeah. And so you have all of these, you know, fancy wine bottles all pink and with their little ribbon on there. And it's like, but you're kind of counteracting the message here. So it's just, it's a really, um, I don't know that the message is hidden, but it hasn't been promoted because I do believe that the alcohol industry has a lot of power in this area. And so they haven't had to mm -hmm. broadcast the, the clarity of the message. And the thing is, I don't want to, if I'm drinking, I don't want to look into those articles. I don't want to see all the right. ways that alcohol is bad for me. I'm going to see one that says, oh, it's good for my heart. And I'm going to share that around because it justifies what I'm doing. I don't have mm -hmm. to kind of deal with that dissonance of, okay, mm -hmm. I know it's not great for me, but, okay, but I should probably stop. But, oh, it's actually great for my heart, so let me continue. But those those studies are often very flawed. Um, there's one about uh, resveratrol. They had, you know, the amount of resveratrol that you would have to consume in order to benefit your heart um, would be impossible. You couldn't do it. So it has a benefit, you know, at, um, at an extreme level, but people don't drink it that way. You would die first <laughs> from all the alcohol. Right, right? So right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's kind of part of it. And going to your point about the drinking at the wedding, I'm not here to tell anybody that they shouldn't drink. It's more if you've realized that it's kind of become a problem. But when you're in that decision of, oh, I, I don't really want to drink, but I do, it's because they, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of beliefs about alcohol. We believe that alcohol is how you celebrate because we've been shown that on TV, shown that in movies, we've seen that in, in experience. We believe that alcohol helps us relax. We believe that alcohol is going to do these things. Mm -hmm. And until we work on all of those beliefs and feelings that we have about alcohol, it's always going to be hard not to want that glass of champagne. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a person and for me now, just a little bit of my backstory, I was a person that never imagined I would stop drinking. I, you know, I felt bad for people that couldn't drink. Like, it's fun. This is what you do when you're an adult. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you? I never set out to stop drinking. I set out to control it because I was not controlling my alcohol. It was getting a little bit worse and worse and worse as time went on. And as I became more and more depressed, that was my go-to medicine. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's really the, the, to be able to make that kind of mindset shift, it really involves working on those beliefs. And then when people are handing you out glasses of champagne at a, at a wedding, you don't have to worry about arguing with yourself. There's just no desire right. there, you know? Right, right. 
when I don't drink at an event, if like we have a I have a business networking group and we have this joke thing we call the corporate meeting, the weekly corporate meeting. It's really just everyone joint meeting up at a bar, right? And I'll have a Pepsi, mm-hmm. a Diet Pepsi or whatever. And I get the question about why I'm not drinking, right? And, oh, do you have a health problem? Do you have a, you know, and then I have to say, well, actually, yes, this is why. But I would imagine if you're someone who's just made a decision about, I just don't want to do this, um, the same questions happen. And it's like everyone makes the assumption it's for a health reason or you're an addict of some sort, Um you're pregnant, you're on antibiotics, there's yeah. something wrong with you right. if you're not doing this because it boggles their mind that you wouldn't want to drink. It's the same mm-hmm. thing for me. You know, me five years ago, I would have been asking the same question, like, really? You're, you're really not going to drink tonight? Mm-hmm. Because what the thing is, when people ask those questions, it's not about you. Like in any other circumstance, people wouldn't care what you're drinking mm-hmm. or eating. We don't, I, no one asked me why I don't eat fennel. I don't eat fennel because it's disgusting. But when it comes <laughs> to alcohol, you're going to start asking questions, right? And it's because it means something to me if I'm asking that question. And so I need you to have a reason why you're not drinking so that I don't have to look at my own drinking, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're not Mm -hmm. drinking because you have a health scare, well, I don't have that health scare, so I'm fine to keep going. Mm -hmm. If you're not drinking because you just don't need it, that Mm -hmm. makes me ask, why do I need it? Mm -hmm. And that's a scary question. So we need a reason. I need a good reason for you to not be drinking so that I don't have to worry about why I'm drinking. And you know, I just read something, I forget where it was. Um, there was a study done of like the offerings in bars across the like U.S. and U.K. And it's more expensive to buy a mocktail or a non-alcoholic drink in some cases than an alcoholic drink. So it's not like it's easier sometimes to get the not like or what are the choices? It's like 7-Up, Pop, Cranberry Water, juice. milk, tea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For those drinks, I mean – Part of that is the alcohol industry has economies of scale, right? So they're chugging out those beers constantly, constantly, constantly. And so the price for each one is much lower. So they can take a smaller uh, profit margin per item than they can for something that's just not being sold as much. Mm -hmm. The other thing is in mocktails, because I don't have that liquor there, I have to actually do some work to make it taste good. I have to muddle some basil. I have to use fresh juices. I have to do something to make it special. And those things, again, are going to be more expensive then yeah, you're the run-of-the-mill beers the labor. And people yeah. don't realize that. But yeah, as it yeah. grows, they are going to get cheaper, right? So yeah. as people are um, experimenting more in this area, you know, Athletic now is everywhere. And it's a very reasonably priced beer um, and because they are really growing really quick in this area. So I think we're going to start to see those prices come down. Um, but if price is your objection to ordering a mocktail, I think there's still some more belief work that we have to do for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. Like, isn't that interesting that if you want to choose not to partake, it's a little more pricey. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talked a little bit about your journey. You want to touch a little bit more on that of like how you got to this place and 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 um, why you feel so passionate about it? Yeah, I'd love to. So I started drinking when I was 16. I would sneak alcohol into my parents' liquor cabinet and we'd top it off with water and um, it was just kind of my way to rebel. I was a, I was a, luckily they kept it in the liquor cabinet and not in the freezer, like some of my other friends' parents, because he learned that uh, water does freeze. Um, oh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, uh, it was, I was rebelling, right? I was the straight A student. I never got in trouble. I didn't do anything wrong. And so this was kind of my chance to do something. I mean, it wasn't like we were doing it every night. It would be very obvious if we were doing this, but just, you know, when you're bored, teenagers, stuff like this would happen. 
then I went to college. I went to one of the most Greek universities in the country oh boy. and uh, one of the most affluent universities in the country. So there was a lot of money and a lot of the fraternity parties and everything. So there was just drinking all the time. Um, and I, you know, I felt like I was just being a normal college student at that point. Like, yes, you drink on Thursdays and Fridays and, you know, we, there were parties always to go to. And, you know, I would even plan out my schedules based on kind of knowing that I'm not going to be feeling my best in the morning. Like I was one credit short of minoring in, uh, statistics, but the last class I needed was 8am on Fridays. And there's no way because we always go out Thursday night. Like I'm not going to be at class at 8am on Friday. So I just skipped it. Um, but it didn't, it didn't seem weird to me because everybody else was doing it too. You know, I wasn't hanging out with people that would choose to spend their weekends, you know, at home playing board games. We were going out. So it didn't really feel like a problem. Um, I noticed it was a problem when I started getting depressed. The first time I was depressed, um, I was studying abroad in Australia. And I think it was just maybe the big, um, the big change in moving places and leaving sure. behind my support system and everything. And so when I was there, I was, I had a box of wine under my desk in my room and I would just be drinking all day long. Like that was just kind of how I would cope. Um, and then I got back to the States, got on some antidepressants, and then I would say my alcohol use returned to normal, right? So drinking on the weekends, um, at, at events, stuff like that, but not necessarily kind of all mm-hmm. day, every day. But then I had a couple more bouts of depression after that. I went to law school, uh, finished law school, but I hated it. I knew this was not what I was meant to do, but I, I'm a finisher. I'm that good student. So I went all the way through and passed the bar exam, um, but I was really miserable at that time. And so I was also using alcohol to cope there. And then again, and you know, it's it was just kind of that cycle of drinking, not drinking, drinking, not drinking. And um, eventually, um, eventually I, I <laughs> we moved to, I moved to Switzerland. My husband is Swiss. And so we were there for five years. And at that point, my um, depression got so bad that I actually had to be hospitalized. Oh. And while I was there, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a lockdown ward, like it was a depression ward, but we were kind of free to go. It was a inpatient, outpatient situation. And mm-hmm. so you had to stay there on the uh, during the week, but then on the weekends you could go home. And sometimes during the day I would sneak out to the, not even sneak, I just would walk out to the kind of the corner store down the street to buy beer or vodka to kind of take back to my room. Like, so even when... I was at my absolute lowest and I knew I had done research that alcohol is bad for depression. I still couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I tried actually dry January that I decided that this this really was a problem and I was kind of ready to to acknowledge that. I did a dry January four years, four or five years ago, maybe, um, and drank three times in there. And I thought, okay, but you know, that one time it was so-and-so's birthday and one time it was just a really hard day at work, so those don't count. And I did dry January a couple more times and I made it through one time without drinking 30 with the whole 31 days. And I was miserable. I was thinking about alcohol every single day. And that, that wow. scared me. Yeah. So it was at that point that I started to realize that I need help. Like if I can't go 31 days without being completely miserable, then there's something, there's something stronger here. I'm just not going to be able to do it on my own. Wow. Wow. What a journey. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you were able to get some help, and I, we can talk about the next steps. Um, I, what comes to mind as you're telling the story is we just um, finished reading a book by one of the friends of our podcast, um, Joanna Hardis, called Just Do Nothing. And she talks about people not willing to feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. and that when you're in that moment of unease or discomfort, Often people turn to something to numb out, um, and it sounds to me like, you know, I, I'm not going to diagnose you. I'm not 
in any way qualified for any of that. But um, it kind of made me think of that um, and that, you know, alcohol can be that social lubricant. It can be the thing if you're bored and you just want to do something on the weekend or uh, in the evenings or something or take the edge off if you're stressed or if you're just like literally having discomfort in your life and you don't want to deal with it. It's a way to tune it out. It is, but we forget that it's just a, a temporary way to That's do right. that, right? It's yeah. a Band-Aid. And yeah. those feelings can be so big and so scary, but they're not going away. And I heard it once um, described as someone's kind of, you're pushing down a beach ball in the water and you can keep oh, yeah. doing it, but that there's that pressure there and it's going to shoot up at some point. So really what you're doing is kind of choosing whether you want to have things hard now or hard later. Because if you continue to choose alcohol for every negative feeling that you're going to have, you're going to have medical issues or those feelings are going to bubble up in a really uncontainable way. Like it's going to get harder at some point. So you can either deal with it now or deal with it later. And we forget that we're causing that future version of ourselves so much pain. Mm-hmm. You know, even when we kind of know alcohol is not great for me, it's that immediate gratification that I'm looking for. It's I know it's going to make me a little less stressed. I know that it's going to make me feel a little bit more confident talking to people. And we don't realize that we're kind of jeopardizing that future version of ourselves. So mm-hmm. if we said no to drinking when we go out to network, we can actually build up the skills to be more confident and to, to speak with people when we go out, to not need alcohol and to kind of develop that confidence there. Um, but if we rely on that crutch, we're just we're just kind of penalizing that future version of ourselves. Yeah. And one of the things Joanna and I talk about a lot is is it takes practice, right? And so that those different moments when you go out and you don't and you say no to alcohol and you're feeling uncomfortable maybe at first, like over time, like you were saying, you choose that little bit of hard, the practice of it after a while, it makes it easier. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Marcy and I got into her background some more, and with that, her experience with alcohol abuse. I made a note of it in this episode, but I was really struck by all the things Marcy was saying that Joanna Hardis and I had talked about a couple of episodes ago. The things we tell ourselves to avoid conflict, both inside and out, can exacerbate a dependency, be it alcohol or anything else. And with the rampant rise in alcohol abuse, perhaps worsened by the recent pandemic, this is something we really need to think about. Conflict avoidance around admitting you have a problem with alcohol is something Marcy can relate to. We talk about how to make the shift away from alcohol and how to navigate your relationships with an alcohol-free perspective. So we're talking about um, you you knew you had a problem and you had to deal with it. So, and I've also read you talk about mindset and belief systems So let's start there. Like, how did you go about making changes and how do you help people start their journey towards change? Yeah, for me, I wasn't aware. I I thought I had two options when I realized that I had a problem. I could go to rehab, spend $50,000 a month, be locked away, but I didn't feel like I was that bad. Like I didn't need to be removed from my home, removed from my job, 
that was a little bit, and I didn't have $50,000 a month. That was a little too extreme for me. Uh, the other option was AA, and that didn't appeal to me. So it's a, it's got a, a strong religious base. I didn't like the word alcoholic for the reasons that I've talked about before. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to, that was just not going to be my path for me. I had, I have known people, and I, I still know people, that have taken the AA route, and they still miss it after 10, 20, 30 years. Um, I also take issue with... Um, the the belief system there that if you if you have a, a relapse or a setback or a data point or whatever word someone wants to use, you've kind of lost all that time to start back from ground zero. And that's not the approach that I personally believe in. I don't think you've lost all of the learnings that you've had up into there. And I think when you do that, it makes it very easy for someone to say, well, forget it. You know, I went 10 years, I had one, so I might as well just keep doing it forever versus looking at, okay, I went 10 years without alcohol and then I had once. What was it that triggered me in this situation to kind of go for it and then to keep moving on in your desired path? So it works for a lot of people. I just, it didn't work for me. It wasn't going to be mm-hmm. a model that worked for me, but I didn't know of anything else. Mm-hmm. And luckily there are people out there running sponsored ads on Instagram that must have known that I had an alcohol problem because I saw things popping up on mine. And um, the, the course that came up was a, a group program where um, it, she, the, the person that runs it, she kind of talked about how you know, we, we want to control alcohol. We don't have to worry about it anymore. We don't have to spend, you know, years saying, okay, I wish I could have a drink. We kind of changed the relationship. And what they did in this program was you're working on each of those beliefs, right? So I like to drink because it helps me relax. And then we look at the science. Actually, drinking does not help you relax long-term. It actually makes you more stressed. So initially you do feel that kind of relaxation with that first glass of wine, but the body likes homeostasis. So it's going to have to, it's going to have to compensate for that. And it does by releasing cortisol and adrenaline. And you're like, well, I don't really notice that happening, but that's because it takes a little time. So if you've ever woken up at three, four in the morning, your heart's racing, you're like, oh my God, why did I have that last drink? Or you're, you're just feeling terrible. That's the cortisol and adrenaline waking you up. And so mm. those are the stress hormones flooding your body. And you, you did something to relax and you're actually making yourself worse. And there are studies that show that people that drink more are actually less able to handle stressful situations over time. Mm. So, you know, th- these are the beliefs. But if I had said drinking helps me relax, I don't think anybody would have challenged that. And I for sure wouldn't. I, I've had all these experiences where I have a glass of wine and then I relax and I don't tie it to those mm-hmm. 3 a.m. wake up calls where I, I just feel terrible about myself for doing it again. Um, some beliefs can't be disputed with science, right? So if I believe that alcohol makes me more confident, for example, I don't really have a good way to study the exact percentage Mm -hmm. of confidence I have before and after. So it's just a belief that I have, but really then I have to think about, is this belief serving me well? So if I believe that alcohol makes me more confident, what I'm saying is that I am less confident without it. Alcohol somehow makes me better. And so I am worse without it. These are the ties that come to that. So instead we can look at it. Well, I haven't had experience being out and and having to socialize without alcohol. It's a skill. And very few of us are amazing at something the first time we do it, but we can get better. There's, you know, the 10,000 hour rule. Um, You can get better at anything over time and you haven't had to develop that skill. So it's not that alcohol makes you more confident. It makes you care less. Um, it kind of removes that, that belief there that, you know, people are watching, people are judging me and you just act impulsively. Uh, but it's, it's a skill that you can, that you can master, right? Same thing with, with boring things that are boring. You, you might drink because it makes it more fun. Is it making it more fun or is it making you care less that it's boring? 
right? So I would, you know, sit at home. Is it just making you louder and more obnoxious? (laughs) Is it just making you, yeah. yeah. You know, you you forget these things that you think it's it's doing one thing, but really is it doing something else? And what is that saying about you as a person? Is it saying that, you know, you are not confident without it, that you need it, otherwise you're less than? And so you can turn that around. Um, Mm -hmm. to different beliefs. And so that was the primary goal of this program is to work on those beliefs. And that's what I do with my clients. I work with clients um, one-on-one. That's something that I would have really wished I had when I was doing this because I was just so embarrassed that I needed this, right? Mm. Like I was the straight A student. I'm a lawyer. I was working at a um, one of the big four accounting firms. I've done a lot of big things in my life. I should be successful and I shouldn't be drinking at home. I shouldn't be um, taking sparkling waters and pouring a little bit out and then topping it with vodka so that no one would know that I'm drinking so I could hide it from people. I shouldn't be hiding vodka bottles in the back of my underwear drawer so that my husband wouldn't see the empties filling up in our recycling bin. Like I shouldn't be at this pert stage. And so if I have to go in a group and kind of admit that I have a problem, it was just horrifying for me. Luckily it was online. And so I could, you know, make up a name if I wanted. And eventually I got comfortable enough. Um, but I, I think there's a, a real lack of one-on-one options. You know, even the traditional models are not one-on-one. You're going to be in groups. So that's something that mm-hmm. I wanted to, I really wanted to have, and mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to offer. But it's the same idea where we're working on those beliefs. And then you get to the point where you just don't care at all about alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's a lot of mindset shifting. It is. It is. Yeah. And, it's not and a lot of unlearning. Yeah, exactly. It's unlearning. You've been thinking these things forever, or other people have been telling you this, or the Mm -hmm. commercials are there showing you that it's more fun at the barbecue with the beer, right? You have all of this kind of programming into you that you just don't think about. And so you have to undo all that. And Mm -hmm. they, speaking of programming, they spend a lot of money to make sure that you think that alcohol relaxes you, to make sure that you think that you need it to be confident and to find love and to have sex and to do whatever other things that you need to do. The alcohol is the the necessary ingredient there, but um, they've actually they've actually started targeting women specifically and they'll admit that in their annual reports because historically it was men that were drinking all of the time or of the people that were drinking, it was historically men. And so women started entering that conversation. And part of it was, you know, I I can, there shouldn't be things that men can do that I can do. I, I want to do it too. But the alcohol industry has kind of turned that and intentionally promoted things like the mommy wine culture. Like, Oh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, have a glass of wine. Being a mom is stressful. You deserve it. But what messaging is that sending, I guess, to our children, right? So that mommy needs wine in order to deal with you. Like, how are those children going to, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just, it's, and you know, you think it's just these funny memes that we're sending back and forth, but these are targeted messaging coming from the alcohol industry to make sure that you stay in the game and, and keep, you know, feeding that that desire. Yeah. Now, also, if you just think about the products they're selling, like these tall, skinny seltzer things, like they're yeah. everywhere now and everything's very branded in a way that's very appealing, uh, less manly, let's say. Yeah. 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 So changing your mindset, changing your beliefs, practicing, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable in the situations until you're comfortable. (laughs) um, That's a lot of inner self-work, but we don't live in vacuums, hopefully. We have relationships. We have partners, we have family members, we have work colleagues, we have friends. Um, I would imagine that when people start to make these big changes in their lives, hopefully gradually, but like sometimes it might seem abrupt, um, it impacts relationships. And it can either, I would guess, unveil problems in relationships um, 
or unveil tensions or stoke tension or I don't know, like you tell me you're the expert. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I've seen it kind of both ways. I've experienced it. My experience was very fortunate. Um, My husband is just one of the greatest people in the world. And when I came to him and I said, I'm going to do this, I don't care what you do. I am doing this for me. And he decided to do it along with me. He didn't Mm do any of the coursework that he did. He didn't have to journal. He didn't have to talk about his feelings. He just decided day one to quit drinking with me. And uh, he hasn't had a drink since, since the the day that I stopped. Um, So there's there's people that are going to be very supportive of you. You know, I had friends come to me afterwards and they were excited, like, oh, Marcy, I haven't had a drink in, you know, two months or six weeks or whatever. Um, And, so you know, I'm really encouraging, but I don't care what my friends do. Like, if they want to go drink, that's fine. I'm not going to preach to them. They know how I feel, but I'm not going to preach to them. But it's exciting to see that I'm having kind of a positive effect on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be that I was an instigator in a lot of these situations. So it's like, oh, we're going to go to the movies. Well, we need wine. Oh, we're going to go do this. Well, we need beer, right? So it could be that without me encouraging them all the time to add alcohol to everything, that it's a little easier for them to abstain. But not everybody has it that way, right? So it can be very threatening when someone comes in and says, I'm going to change the dynamic. Mm-hmm. You may have had a relationship where every every Friday night or when you go out to date night or whatever your routine is that alcohol is involved with you and your partner and people don't generally like change. So this is disruptive. What your partner is likely thinking if you're going to come into this is that you are going to completely change. You're not going to have anything in common anymore. You might outgrow them. And that's a scary thought. You know, you've built this relationship, however long it's been, it's scary to think that's being threatened. So what I advise my clients in this situation is to kind of leave breadcrumbs for your partners, for your friends, for your family member, whoever it is. If you walk in and say, I'm never going to drink again, that's it, I'm done, that's scary. You've just said never, you've used big words, and it's threatening. If you say, I think I'm going to take a break for 30 days, then your partner isn't likely to freak out and think, oh my God, you've, you've ruined this, our relationship is over. They may think, okay, it's a cute phase that she's going through and then she'll she'll move on, but it's not as threatening. And then in that time, you could maybe leave clues about, okay, this is these are the positive things that I've noticed. You know, I'm actually sleeping a lot better. I've noticed that my skin is clearing up. I've noticed, you know, I don't have headaches. I'm not waking up at 3 a.m., whatever good things are happening. Um, it's also opportunity to be more honest with the people in your life. So mm-hmm. even if, you're a completely open book. It's unlikely that you have told your partner or your friends every single thought that you've ever had, right? But there are probably some really negative thoughts that you've had while you're drinking or about your drinking, right? I kind of went into some of those, those shameful things that I was hiding or I thought I was hiding. It's likely my husband knew about more than I thought he did. Um, but kind of admitting those and letting go of that that stress, that shame that I had. And when your partner hears the negative thoughts that you've had about yourself about alcohol or your concerns for your health or whatever reasons that you don't want to drink anymore presumably if this person has your best interest at heart they're going to support you right we all want to hope that the, the relationship that we're in is one where both of us should succeed you know together and we all want the best for each other um but i think when you kind of approach it small with just the little baby steps of okay i'm just taking a break for now you know what? it's going really well i think i'm going to extend it a little bit they may see the positive changes that you're making and maybe they'll want to jump on board. Mm-hmm. But even if they don't, it doesn't have to be the death knell of a relationship because one drinks and one doesn't. You can still go out to dinner and instead of ordering a glass of wine, you order something else, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be like everything is completely changed just because one person drinks and one doesn't. I know many couples who where that's the situation. So Yeah. A few things come to mind as you're talking, and, and that is I think a lot of people 
um, let's say a bunch of people get together for dinner on a weeknight, you know, they may feel pressured to order a beverage, but don't really want to. And so if you're the one who's like, you know, I'm not really feeling it, it kind of gives other people sort of that permission to, yeah, I'll just have a diet, whatever, yeah. you know, like it's, it's kind of, kind of taking the pressure off other people in a way. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that kind of came to mind as you were speaking is that I think when when we make big pronouncements about changes we're making, some people may receive that as a judgment on them mm-hmm. and what they're doing. And so, you know, you want to make sure that you're talking about this is what I need. This is what I'm feeling. And this these are the issues I'm having as opposed to drinking is bad. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's the that's the approach I took where you do whatever you want to do, husband. Right, I'm, this right, is right, what I'm making right. for myself. But even if you don't approach it that way, if you say, I think I'm going to quit drinking, people are bound to take it personally, right? Mm-hmm. Just that same question when they ask you, why aren't you drinking tonight? They're, mm-hmm. It's really about them because at the end of the day, I mean, our self-preservation, we're all about ourselves. We want to be mm-hmm. for other people, but really this is number one, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, they're going to take it personally, but that's that's kind of where you can kind of open the doors a little bit, right? So it shouldn't stop you from doing something that's going to be positive right. for yourself, right? If, if your partner is going to be upset, but you know that this is going to change your life, I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of a choice you have to choose between. Which of, which of these interests are more important at that point? Right. Well, and if you live the experience that I'm not trying to change our relationship or I'm not trying to change you and you just go about your life, then the panic may, level kind of goes down, I would think. So... How did this impact you as like a business owner? And like and now you've gone out on your own and I know you coach people and stuff. Like, do you find you have more clarity? Do you find um, in just in general in your life, um, do you feel like tell us about some of the positive aspects of living a sober life? Sure. So I have had a lot of jobs. So I told you I was a lawyer. Then I mm-hmm. became a, an auditor at a big four firm. And then I realized that I, the title of a job and the salary was not going to be enough for me. I really needed something that was going to give back, that's going to be fulfilling. So I went into public libraries, love public libraries, and you know got promoted five times in five years working there. And I loved the job, but I didn't have as much control, right? So public mm. libraries report to the city. There's just a lot of bureaucracy that goes on in there, a lot of politics that goes on in there. And so it didn't sit well with me. The actual tasks that I had you know, were perfect for me. I'm a very analytical person. I was running... Um, the acquisitions and, and collections, um, but the, the all the pieces behind it there were just not fitting for my personality. And I would have never imagined that I would be an entrepreneur. Like I went to business school and I imagined I would be a CEO. That's actually the, the what 18-year-old me wrote on her college application essays that she wanted to be a CEO. But it was never because I thought I was going to have my own idea. I just was going to take charge of something that already existed. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was creative enough or smart enough to start something on my own. Mm-hmm. And three months into my uh, alcohol-free journey, I decided that this is what I want to do. I want to pay this forward. I want to start coaching. And two months later, I had quit my job. I had you know, um, purchased my website domain. I was starting to work on these things. It's just I was so empowered because what I had learned in that time is that I can actually do hard things. Like I don't have to, you know, deal, drink alcohol in order to kind of push away those emotions. I can handle what it is that comes up. I've done something incredibly hard with this. I changed my 20 years or whatever relationship with alcohol and now to the point where I don't care about it at all. I've done such a hard thing in completely changing my mind here that 
I can do, of course I can run a business. Heck yeah, I can run a business. And I'm doing it all by myself. And it's fun because mm-hmm. running a business is a game to me. I get to find out what doesn't work and I get to try something else. So, you know, before I may have been working 80 plus hours a week as a, a lawyer or an auditor, and now I'm doing at least that and probably more, but that's because I can't stop because it's fun for me. Not because there's an expectation that this is what someone in this role does. It's just like, oh, I haven't tried this. I need to go do that. And it's just, it's exciting and I'm having fun honestly, for the very first time in my entire life in my job. And I I just can't believe it took me this long to figure it out. (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. There was no plan for me to become an entrepreneur. Um, I think it sort of became the default position um, because I'm a control freak and I don't want, I want to be able to pick and choose what I work on. And I, yeah, cut away the the BS bureaucracy stuff. So I can totally relate to what you're saying. and it sounds like you've really gotten control of your life in general and you're helping other people get control of theirs um, in a positive way. So that's fantastic. Um, I would love for you to tell people more about how they can find you and what you have to offer. Sure. So if anything here resonated with you and you're thinking about taking a break from alcohol, I have a, a guide on my website. It's kind of right there in the front when you open it. And it's five things to do before you quit drinking. So if you hmm, think that's of, interesting. Yeah. I want to make sure that everybody is set up for success, even if they're not going to hire a coach or go to a 12-step meeting or anything else. These are some things that can really make sure that you're going to start off on the right path and in the strongest path to kind of set yourself up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I also offer free 30-minute calls with me. You know, if you're deciding that this is something you're kind of interested in, don't really know what to do, you can book a call on my website as well and we can kind of figure out, you know, why it is that you're turning to alcohol and, and maybe some steps forward from there. And that's MarcyRossi.com. We'll put a Marcy link Rossi. on our show notes for you and uh, and on our website page. Um, well, Marcy, this has been delightful. And um, I really, I learned a lot on your website. So I would encourage people to go there, read your blog posts. I learned a lot. And I've learned a lot during this conversation. So thank you for sharing your insights. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so that's it for now. Thanks for listening. That's a Hard No is a production of Clever Girl Marketing, my little agency in Cleveland, in partnership with our friends at Evergreen Podcasts. Many thanks to our amazing team, including Maura Del Rosario, our production and marketing coordinator, Noah Fouts, our amazing producer, editor, and composer who wrote our theme music and performed it with his band, The Big Leagues, and our new video producer and editor, Kay Holmberg. You can find show notes and resources on our website, and you can find other fun stuff on our socials. We're Hard No Podcast, and we're now on YouTube, so check us out there. Make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite listening platforms, but especially Apple. Can you please do us a favor? Give us a rating and review so more people can find us and learn how to say no. So until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, saying no isn't just okay. Saying no is key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. So do it. Find your no, then say it with me. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. 
I'll also be sharing Business Bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.